Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to another political party replay from the back catalogue while I recover from surgery and physio and whatever else is happening to me this week that I'm not aware of because I recorded this many, I was going to say moons ago. I don't know why I sort of slip into old-fashioned language when I'm doing stuff like this, but a while back. This is from 2017 and it's the first time Michael Heseltine appeared on the show and I'll never forget this night because I was in the presence and we all were those of us lucky enough to be in that room, of someone from a different era, and not just the pre-Brexit era, the pre-Blair era. The, the, I mean, this Michael Heseltine's career stretches so far back, and I, the main thing I remember, not just that he absolutely looks like Michael Heseltine, such a striking, impressive person, but also just that his brain was so sharp. It, it is completely undimmed. He is as intense and as razor-whip-sharp as he's ever been. And uh, this, well, this is an hour in the company of the dictionary definition of a political heavyweight. Enjoy. Um, As you know, we try and get guests from all across the political spectrum, and... Uh, guests with varying degrees uh, of experience. Tonight's guest is someone who is a defining political character of my upbringing, one of the most iconic politicians in post-war British politics, a man who could have been Prime Minister and who knows how different history would have been. Tonight, perhaps we'll find out. Please give a huge welcome to one of the biggest guests we've ever had here, Michael Heseltine. Welcome <laughs> <laughs> to the show. Uh, well, Michael, uh, an almost, an almost uh, Corbyn levels of popularity here tonight. Perhaps <laughs> you got it from me. <laughs> um, what, do you, what do you make of the, of, of the, of the rise of Corbyn, of him of being, being on the brink of Downing Street? Well, I never thought it would happen, and I, I can understand why it's happening, because uh, across the Western world there is this frustration of the post-2008 economic freeze. I mean, people are fed up. The living standards have been frozen for now nearly a decade. And if that happens, people have got to be blamed. And the, the, the phenomenon that really deeply preoccupies me, but is there to be seen, is that immigration has become the issue. Trump, Mexico, AFD, Germany, the, Mex- the uh, um, Syrians, in this country, anything that moves, Farage, you know. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's deeply depressing. And, and you see this swing to the right. Well, if you get a swing to the right, there'll be a reaction. And Corbyn has spotted the vacuum, uh, particularly 
the younger generation, which is very frightening from my party's point of view. In terms of immigration, obviously it's something that the Conservatives have had a sort of difficult relationship with themselves and subsequent Tory leaders, one thinks of William Hague and Ian Duncan Smith and Michael Howard, talking tough on immigration, uh, even David Cameron and Theresa May talking about reducing it to the tens of thousands. There seems to be even from centrists like Tony Blair a, a mood music that the immigration actually does need to be controlled. Do you think that, apart from what we would call normal controls on immigration, security checks and the like, uh, Britain does need to cut immigration, or actually should Britain in this post-Brexit world, if we ever do become a post-Brexit world, actually open its arms and say more people should come here? Well, no. I, I was the first Conservative to attack Enoch Powell in 1968. It was a disgraceful speech, disgraceful in a very simple way. It said nothing, but it used language which gave the impression it had said everything. Uh, they're going to be sent back. That's the message, but it was not the language. And uh, so it was a totally duplicitous speech. And it was designed, uh, Ted Heath was the leader of the Conservative Party at the time, and the Labour Party were about to introduce legislation to make it uh, legal that there would be no discrimination on the grounds of, of uh, racial discrimination. I was at the time involved in running employment agencies and running uh, small hotels. I knew what was happening on the streets and I wouldn't support the Tory party. I defied a three-line whip. Three weeks later, the Tory party changed their mind. <laughs> so I've been through this. I remember it vividly. I saw the Smithfield Porters March. My own constituents in Devon were hardly, could hardly talk. They were so motivated by it all. Anyway, Ted sacked Enoch, and quite rightly so. Uh, and, but it's, it's now back uh, on the agenda. <laughs> and there has to be uh, border controls. I mean, my, the thing I find extraordinary about the present position in this country is that Theresa May was Home Secretary for six years Half the net immigration comes from outside Europe. So if you're going to cut it, why didn't they do it? They have, there's no law in Europe which says you will not allow immigration from the rest of the world. It's only the internal uh, free movement that is the issue. That's half our immigration problem. The other half is completely within the gift of the British government. They did nothing with the name. And why? Well, I'll tell you why I think they didn't, is because the consequences of cutting immigration on the health service, on public sector activity, on the skills shortage, would, will be very serious. And so they, they, they don't mind talking about it, but they know that doing it is not that easy. But that's the danger, isn't it, when you have politicians that, that signal to certain wings in, in politics, and happens on right and left, but we talk about William Hague and people like that who, for years... Uh, pumped out anti-European messages and then yeah. come the referendum said actually no you should should vote to stay in the European Union I mean this was a, a referendum wasn't it uh, for party management issues this was a, a crisis purely in the Conservative Party yes uh, as was the Labour Party referendum of 1973 that was exactly the same situation Harold Wilson had a deeply divided Labour Party they couldn't find an agreement so we'll have, he put the decision off by saying we'll have a referendum well when it came to it, uh, he campaigned to remain in, the bulk of his party did, and the Conservative Party, which of course led, the Conservative Party led the whole European movement. Um, the Labour Party were against the beginning, but uh, it was the Conservative Party that led it, and now the Conservative Party that is, so to speak, unleading it. What do you make of uh, Theresa May as a Prime Minister? 
Well, she's not going to lead the Tory party into the next election. Um, my own, so that means it's a relatively short-term tenure. But there's a great deal of speculation about who should take her place. I'm much less interested in who than in what they say. In other words, my view is a very clear one. The Tory party should change the song, not just the singer. But for the song you would like to hear sung, who would be the best singer to sing? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't see one. That's At all? No, I can't. I mean, th that is my trouble. Where is the Churchill of the 30s who defied the Tory government when, he, when they were wrong? Where is the Harold Macmillan of the middle way who articulated the sort of conservatism I believe in, who told the British people the truth in the 60s about the loss of empire and the need to find a destiny? Where is that person? I can't see it. I can't see him or her. Sajid Javid? Well, um, that, that if I if tell me something's happened tonight, I don't know, but I didn't think he was a member of the Conservative Party. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Sajid, oh, Sajid, 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 I'm so sorry. I was thinking of Khan. Um, <laughs> no, well, there's no evidence that Sajid is going to do that. But do you think he's capable? Well, yeah, I know him well. I mean, yeah, I've worked for him, and uh, he's, he's, a very, he's certainly capable, yes. But there's no one really, because obviously the, the people that people are talking about at the moment are Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg. Well, uh, let's, let's be serious and talk about Boris. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Boris is a serious contender, and, and there are all the tests of opinion that we all watch, we all pretend we don't, but we all do watch these polls. Uh, Boris is, is out in front. Now, he's not... He's not overwhelmingly in front, and he's more fragile than he was, but Boris is the most effective communicator on the horizon at the moment, my view. I, I hate his views, but uh, I like him, actually, because he took over from me at Henley, and he, we got on extremely well, and, and he makes me laugh. And, and I say that very seriously, because a very high proportion of Boris's appeal is that people like laughing. Mm. You know, there's not that much to laugh about in politics, and if you can make people laugh, you're halfway home. Boris makes them fall about. Um, sometimes when he, tells, <laughs> when he tells the Europeans to go and whistle for their money, the joke falls a bit flat, but, uh, but, but Boris is funny, and that's his great appeal. Do you think this era is almost... Uh, ideal for him that maybe 10 years ago he wouldn't have been right but if this is a, a populist age if it's who can beat Corbyn then actually he's no, a, a I, no, almost I, sensible I tell you, choice. I think if Boris I mean I I had a, a, a discussion with serious political colleagues of in my party about which way Boris would opt and we both we both thought he'd stay pro-European we were we were wrong I think if he had stayed pro-European and stayed within the government uh, from that aspect, then he would now be, without doubt, the logical successor. Mm. But I think leading the, uh, the Brexit campaign, which he did, and, and frankly, the things he said are unforgivable. Uh, the bus, 350 million quid a week and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, but I think he's done himself a lot of harm. And he, the, the other thing that I think is quite important in politics, he's too out in front. You want to win in politics, never be the leader. Always be close enough to when the leader falls. <laughs> is this the, the voice of bitter experience? <laughs> I gave you that line, didn't I? <laughs>
But it's something new. Obviously, for, for many years, people would have said Michael Hastings is the obvious choice to succeed Margaret Thatcher, uh, even to succeed John Major in 1997. But it wasn't, it wasn't to be for you. And it's a remarkable period that you were in, really, that was a volatile in a different way to now. But nevertheless, people becoming politicised as a part of a, a government that was deeply unpopular for things like the, the poll tax, the minor strike. And obviously, the poll tax was something that was... Uh, Something that you were you were you were passionately against yeah. uh, in terms of Margaret Thatcher. What? Well, firstly, are there any connections? Do you think any similarities between Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May? Well, they're both leaders of the Conservative Party. I think we can establish that as a fact. You know? um, any personality traits? I, I don't. You know, I've never met Theresa May, uh, so I don't know her. I don't have any any sort of way in which I can assess what I really think about her. I see her on telly like we all do. But I've never met her, I've never had a conversation, therefore, with her. Um, whereas I had um, plenty of conversations with Margaret. <laughs> uh, and I didn't, uh, uh, we, we were good colleagues. I mean, the history has all been rewritten after the Westland affair, mm. because the, the, her supporters have to paint me into a corner and all that, and I understand that's what happens in life. But before that, I mean, if you look at where Margaret put me and what she asked me to do and how I did it, I was, she had a very high regard for me. I mean, I know that from what people have said. Um, you know, she put me in the front line of selling the council houses. She put me in the front line of fighting CND in the, in the, then the second general election. I, I did both for her. I, I, I helped save her reputation over the sinking of the Belgrano in a speech in the House of Commons. And I delivered, um, I think I've privatized more activities than any other minister. <laughs> I beat Keith Joseph in the number of quangos that I closed down. Uh, so, I mean, really, if you want the truth, I'm the sort of, I'm the, the architect of Thatcherism, <laughs> you know, or something. Don't get carried away, that's a bit of a... Uh, I, I also ended the poll tax, so my, my street cred is all right. <laughs> But you were you were a major figure in, a, in in what was a sort of divisive government full of big characters. There are certain parallels, aren't there, with the with the Conservative Party now? Perhaps not in terms of the election result, because Margaret Thatcher always did quite well against, well, always did very well uh, against the Labour leaders that she faced. But what was it like to be part of a Conservative government when you're a Conservative to your core, when you believe in Conservative values, but the government itself, perhaps at times, she felt was was betraying those ideals. Well, it, it, I can't tell you what a privilege it is to serve in the major offices of state. I mean, people say to me, I'm thinking of going to politics. And I say, don't. If, if you have got any doubts, don't do it. Because it is a, a, a totally demanding 24-7 pressure. Now, if you like that, if you can take it, there's nothing like it. You are the centre of the stage. I mean, here you and I are sitting in this little stage with a couple of hundred people out there, which is very nice. If you're in frontline politics, you've got millions all the time. And every day, you have to make seven or eight decisions. Every decision you make is controversial. If it was easy, you would never know about the decision. It would have been made way beyond, below your level of authority. So if you make the decision, in every decision, it's 60-40. 40 hate you, 60 love you. Five minutes later, you make another one. The 60 that love you, hate you, you know? So you can't come out of it unscathed and sort of think that everybody thinks you're obviously wonderful. 
if you affect people, they say you don't listen, you don't care, they never see you, you're all in it if you can get out of it, all that stuff, which is what all of us get flung at. Okay, you've got to take all that. And the pressure on your family, because you're, and in the audience, and my, my, it all flows off to them as well. So, but, but on the other hand, if you can look back and say, well, perhaps I nudged history at that moment, that is the ultimate sense of achievement. And you certainly did the, the poll tax, really, is, uh, the death of the poll tax is, is one of your major achievements and something you'll always well, be... Well, that, that was a scandal. I mean, I can tell you, you know, I'm not telling you anything that everyone doesn't know, but I, I, I'm, I'm rich. I've made a lot of money from very small amounts of money. Anne and I live in a magnificent 18th century house. It's a privilege. We paid the same in poll tax as the people we employ who live in cottages working for us. We had a spectacular house in Belgrade Square. They don't come more spectacular than that. We lived there in Westminster, the most prosperous borough in the country, and we paid nothing. On the other side of the river, in a council flat, if you lived in a tenement block, the flat at the top with five people, you paid 5,000 pounds. It is indefensible as a means of raising money. And I was responsible in 1979 for looking at the alternative to the rates. That was my job. Mm. I looked at the poll tax, because when you start off, you say, oh, that's quite sensible. If people pay, they'll understand, and they will, you know, they'll, they'll take more trouble. But once you get it into party politics and, and the inequalities that I've just mentioned, it becomes indefensible. And I told the cabinet that in 1980, and they agreed. Margaret didn't like it, but she didn't win. The moment I left to become Defence Secretary, she asked Willie Whitelaw to go back and have another look. Willie, very sensible, middle-of-the-road Tory, came back and said, Margaret, don't touch it. And she accepted that for a shortish period of time until they did a rate revaluation in Scotland. And what always happens with rate revaluations, if you, if you put up the poundage, you double the poundage, you should half the rate of tax levied but they never do. They double the poundage and then they, 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 they up the, the rateable value, rate, rating level itself. And of course there was an explosion in, in Scotland. Margaret brought back the poll tax. And uh, it would have destroyed the Tory party in the 92 election if I hadn't uh, made it a commitment for her departure. And I then had to, I then had to find an alternative because John put me into the Department of Environment, and I I, I went to Paris as an, an Environment Minister to sit in one of the European Councils, and it was so pulverizingly boring. I can't tell you how boring it was. <laughs> and I said to my private secretary, I can't stand any more of this because all these ministers from foreign countries, instead of just saying well we're in favour or we're against or whatever, they read interminable garbage, <laughs> each of them, round the table, you know. And I said, I can't stand any more of this. So let's go back to the embassy and draft the alternative to the poll tax. <laughs> and, and what did I do? Well, I brought back the rates. <laughs> it, it's one of those things, the poll tax, that, that is almost, it, it, there's, there's a mythology around it. And it's become, it, it's still hardwired into the way people think about the Tory party now. It's something Theresa May touched on, of course, when she was a, 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 a new shining light, when she described the Tory party or the perception of it as the nasty party. And things like the miners' strike, things like the poll tax, are the things that people still draw on emotionally when they think about that. In terms of modern examples 
uh, of, of where Conservative governments have got it wrong. Do you think things like the bedroom tax are as, as bad as the poll tax? No, 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 no. I mean, you can argue about whether it's good or... I mean, it's, it's, it's about... There's a shortage of public sector housing. We all know it. You have a situation where families have been allocated a, a, a council house and they had three children. The children have grown up and gone, leaving two people in a council house with three bedrooms. And so public policy looks at this. They've got a queue of people with kids who want accommodation and they've got two people living in a house which is much too big for them. So in order to try and encourage them, they say, well, look, if you're going to let those extra rooms, you're going to have to pay something for it. And you can't fault the logic of that. Of course, you're going to have a lot of people sit, jumping up and down saying, I've been here all my life and da, 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 da. Um, but sizing down, downsizing is a very common phenomenon in the, uh, uh, in the property market, in the, own, in the freehold market where people own their homes. But the trouble with being a council tenant is that you can't get an alternative. So you are very inclined to stay put. But the policy was, is nothing like as divisive as um, the poll tax. But it, it contributed to a perception at a time that, you know, Conservatives are, are naturally heartless people. They simply don't understand what it's like to be impoverished or, or, or less, perhaps extreme, not privileged. Do you think there is a, there's a problem that will always repeat itself in the Conservative Party, that there is a lack of empathy, perhaps, for, for people at the lower end of the income scale? Well, I think that there will always be those who try to paint the Conservative Party into that position. But the party to which I belong, which is with pride the Conservative Party, has been at the forefront of a very high proportion of the great social reforms. It was the Conservatives who took the women out of the mines and the children out of the chimneys in the very early parts of the 19th century. It was the Conservatives who first gave the working class men the vote under Disraeli towards the end of the last century. Uh, that's huge reforms of public sector um, services under Neville Chamberlain, people like that. And uh, I, I would myself argue that the sale of council houses was a huge social revolution. At the same time as I did that, I recreated the private rented sector. Now, you can say to me, but aren't there some abuses in the private rented sector? There probably are, because there are always nasty people at the fringe of all activities. But recreating the private rented sector has been as big a revolution as the uh, sale of council houses, which I did at the same time. Housing is still a major issue, isn't it? I think for, for a lot of people it's the major issue and it's one of the reasons why Jeremy Corbyn did so well. Uh, when William Hague was here last time, I got the sense that actually he was, whether he had been talking to people close to the centre of the Conservative Party or not, but it sounded like housing might be something that this Conservative government would, would seriously tackle. Do you think that would be, firstly, a, a way for the Tories to head off Corbyn and secondly, is it the right thing to do for a Conservative government to perhaps build more, significantly more, well, uh, council I, I, houses? I'm not going to avoid the question. I'll answer it. There has to be more housing. That's full stop. I, I have a, a slant on the approach. I, we have a population explosion, and it's going to go on. You can be, whatever your, your views, the, the fact of the matter is there are going to be a lot more people on these islands in 20, 30 years than there are today. So you've got to house them somewhere. Now, my slant on this is that the, the temptation is to just do it field by field. More houses on the fringe of village and town. I myself believe in an urban strategy that creates places as opposed to just houses. Uh, 
In other words, I want to be much more involved in the urban st strategy about where you invest and what, what you invest alongside um, the housing growth. Uh, I've spent a lot of my political career involved in urban policy. And um, so uh, th there is a difference in approach. I'm, just, I'm not in favor of just more houses. Although we need them, and I think that the local authorities should be brought back into the housing position. When I sold the council houses, when the deal I did in 1979, that the money that came from the sale of council houses, 75% of it would go into the building of new social housing. I went to be defence secretary and the treasury took the money back. Uh, that was a mistake. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's most people's problem with it, is that even uh, people on the left can accept, and many Labour politicians prior to 79 were advocating the, the sale of, of, of council houses. They it was didn't about tell me at the time. Reinvesting, <laughs> <laughs> reinvesting the money in the housing stock is the, the crucial sort of yes. part of the equation, isn't yes, it? Yes, I agree with that. And, and I, that was the deal I did. And it was uh, not implemented on the scale it should have been. Your reputation wasn't just built, as you say, on, on these sort of ideas about urban development or indeed uh, cancelling the poll tax, but your nickname, Tarzan, um, came from this, this period prior to there being... <laughs> well, not just the hair, wasn't it? The, the, the swinging of the mace. Oh, the mace, yes. In, in, in yeah. Parliament. In... Now, the, the, the version I heard was that it was around sort of 1976 and Labour MPs were singing the red flag in the chamber. Correct. And this is, this is prior to there being television cameras in Parliament. Correct. And the mace that sits uh, on the table with the clerks and opposite the Speaker's chair, you ran down the aisle, picked it up and swung it round. No. You know, I, that, that, uh, I, wish, I wish there'd been television. <laughs> because, uh, well, it, it is, there, there's lots of, sort of memories about that particular incident. The, first of all, the real trigger for what happened was that the Labour Party cheated. There is a convention in the House of Commons, which is a very, very sacred convention, that you can pair. You've got two people who are seriously ill in hospital, one from either side. The whips can come to an agreement that they count each other out so that you don't go through this harrowing business of uh, an ambulance being brought into the Palace of Westminster. Hopefully, only one of the ambulances arriving and the other guy doesn't get that. So it was, it's a brutal business. So there is this very sensible arrangement that you can have a pair. And um, it, it, it spread. So a minister overseas on government business, the Labour Party wants somebody to go somewhere, they get a pair. It's absolutely right. The issue that was at the core of that evening is that the Labour Party had really not got a majority over a major piece of legislation to nationalize the aircraft and shipbuilding industries, which I was leading for the opposition. And um, it, there were two votes. The first vote, they won, I, I, I've forgotten whether it was by one, but it was either parity or, or by one. But the second, we all knew that the way the pairing worked, they were gonna lose whereupon somebody who had been named as a pair turned up and the chief, chief Labour whip put him through the lobbies and they won by one. And that, everyone knew the circumstances. The Labour Party came back from the lobbies, heard the vision, they'd saved their legislation by one. They stood on the green benches and sang the red flag. I picked up the mace. <laughs> Perhaps I shouldn't have done, but I did. And I said, I did that, 
And I said, you have abused the authority of the house. You better take the symbol as well. And I put it back down. Um, and you can call Anne up on the stage. She was there. I didn't wave anything. But of course, <laughs> of course, what a story. <laughs> you know. and, so, and so it became folklore. But I've got two cartoons, which because I've got a wonderful collection of cartoons. Uh, one of them shows this mad, you know, all this. And that's one. Uh, but the other, which was the front middle, the front page of the Sunday Times, shows this historic figure holding this great torch of freedom <laughs> against the baying mobs of the Labour Party. <laughs> That's the one I like. <laughs> <laughs> what followed uh, pretty soon after was, was the election of Margaret Thatcher as, as Prime Minister. Um, and it's clear, as you say at the time, she, she genuinely respected you. And it's clear from her autobiography that she had immense respect for your ability and for your popularity. She never, she never sort of undermines your, your talent. But that she was very wary of you from, from sort of quite an early stage. Uh, what's it like being in a government where you're personally ambitious, where you've got a popular prime minister, but perhaps at the back of your mind for a number of years was, how do you get that person out? No, but it wasn't. I mean, that, there is not... All the evidence, such as it is, contradicts that. And you, you're an observer of the scene. You'll know this. What are the great criticisms of me? I never was in the tea rooms. I never indulged in social chit-chat. I was not part of the, the sort of social part of politics. Those are, those are so, such wide criticisms, and they're right. I mean, I, I don't in any way pretend other. Um, I, I had a very simple view. Of course I was ambitious. I reckoned if I did my job properly, I would get promoted. And so I concentrated on doing my job properly, and all the way up, from the early 70s under Ted Heath and then under Margaret, I got more and more preferment to do a job. There has never been any serious criticism that I didn't do the job well. The, the issue that led to my resignation was the Westland, well, it was the events surrounding Westland. It, it, it isn't about a helicopter company in the West Country. It's about Margaret's behavior as a prime minister and how she denied me the right to uh, put my case to cabinet. That's what the issue was. And um, I left. Uh, and from that moment on, I supported her. Uh, I did nothing to undermine her position other than to oppose the poll tax, which I did, and to argue the European case, which she was then beginning to distance herself from. But uh, there, was no, there was no conspiracy, you know. No, nobody has ever come forward and said, ah, but you came up to me in the late 80s and asked for my support. No one ever has. Why? I never did. It's perfectly true. I had a list of people who came up to me and said, we're with you when the day comes. I had a list, 157 Tory MPs, but never did I approach a single person myself. So it's a complete, it's just been invented to try and justify what Margaret did in 86. Um, I was as loyal to her as anyone. I, I didn't really like her. I don't really admire her. Um, but as a colleague, I was totally reliable up to 86. One of the caricatures of the time is that uh, a lot of your colleagues, particularly male colleagues, were, were kind of bewitched and beguiled by, by Margaret Thatcher. Do you think yeah. that's accurate? Well, I can't tell you what they felt. 
So there were things that are private in one's own life. And, and uh, you hear of all these things, but they're, they're, you know, leave them alone. Which <laughs> was a formidable individual, wasn't she, Margaret Thatcher? Yes. In terms yes, of yes. No, no, yes, a formidable person, yes. Intimidating? Well, you see, this was one of the problems. Uh, I, I'm a, a, a middle-class English, well, Welsh-English public school boy. That's what I am. So I was brought up to be, I was brought up to behave in certain ways. I was brought up to give my seat on buses to ladies. I was brought up to sort of to stand up if someone came into the room uh, and, to, and broadly to be deferential to ladies, women, girls, whatever. That's what, I, that's what I am, you know, fine. That was what most people like me were. Um, a lot of your colleagues were too deferential to ladies at the time. Okay. Now, <laughs> when you came to deal with Margaret as Prime Minister, you had to survive. And if you went to Cabinet with a paper that was your responsibility, the job of the Secretary of State was to tell the Cabinet the facts, the alternatives, and a proposal. That's what you've got to do. Before you'd got three sentences out, she would be haranguing you. And uh, so my natural instinct from the, you know, would be to say, well, okay, this is what the lady wants, what the Prime Minister wants, toft my forelock and all that. But you would have been out within no time at all, because deep down she hated people who gave in to her. She, well, she had no respect for them, let's put it like that, it's more accurate. So you, you had to wait until she'd drawn breath and start again. <laughs> and I, I was very conscious, and, and the thoughts I'm sharing with you now were thoughts I had in the cabinet in 79 when this process began. And I thought, I can't give in. If, uh, if I give in, she will just ride over me, and before no, long, I've shuffled out of the job. And I remember Geoffrey Howe was the same. You know, we, we simply said, well, Prime Minister, I've, I've heard what you said, now this is the point, and this is where we're going to have to listen. These are the decisions we have to make. Yak, yak, yak. Prime Minister, if I may continue, you know. And, and it, it was a very, I mean, mad, really. <laughs> what are your abiding memories of Margaret Thatcher in terms of personal encounters? Uh, well, uh, um, well, I tell you what I, what I really think. There were two Margaret Thatchers. There was the Margaret Thatcher that started here, came from the gut, and she had lots of instincts, lots of anecdotal experiences about her brother's farming or about what tenants did with their house, council houses. And it, it was really not a very intellectually appealing part of what she believed, but it was deep down and it's echoed, frankly, amongst a lot of people have these gut instincts as to what they believe in, you know, mm. no better than they should be and all that sort of stuff. And then there was this Margaret Thatcher, and you had to convert the flow of gut into an intellectual dialogue when you could win, you could persuade her. As long as you could engage her mind, you could actually get your way or persuade her. I mean, she, I have to put the, the positive side. On the big battles that I fought for Margaret, first of all, 
I always found out whether she'd support me. It didn't mean that I would give in, but if I was going to do something difficult, I did one of the most difficult things that uh, Secretary of State for Defense has done since the war. I, I brought together under one command the three military forces of uh, the Army, Navy, and Air Force, and of course the Royal Marines as well. And um, I knew every Secretary of State from Lord Louis Mountbatten had wanted to do it, and they'd all tried and they'd all failed. And I was, I said, I'm going to do this. I went to Margaret and I said, Margaret, they will be in here instantly, uh, using their rights as Chief of the General and Defence Staff to come and appeal directly to the Prime Minister. So, but I'm going to do it, but I need to know that you'll support me. There's no point in me doing it if you're then going to overturn. But she said, no, you do it, I'll back you. And she did. And over the Docklands, uh, the development corporations, again, uh, it ended up in Downey Street with Keith Joseph, Jeffrey Howe and myself in front of her. I won. She, she, she t over, I was a junior member of the cabinet. Keith and Jeffrey were the great thingy-bobs. And, and I won. So I had a, and, and she, there was another occasion. Oh, God. Uh, I, I created a management system in government which was very detailed, immensely boring to implement, but devastatingly effective in getting ministers in charge of their department. Margaret was thrilled with this. And she called a meeting of the cabinet uh, in Downing Street and said, now, uh, Willie Whitelaw and Quinton Halesham and Peter Carrington, Michael Heseltine's going to tell you how to run your department. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've only got to think of those people. Giants of Ted Heath's government, you know, great figures, national figures, being told they had to sit and check to the nearest thousand pounds what their civil servants were spending in every direction. Anyway, that, that, um, she, she was so impressed with this. And I mean, it, 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 I reduced the size of the department by 13,000 people in three years with this sort of management grip. But she, the, the meeting took place and... Uh, I made my presentation, and John Knott, who was the Defence Secretary at the time, said, Prime Minister, do you seriously think that with my problems with an 18% inflation rate on the defence budget, I can be involved in the sort of minutiae of this? Whereupon she flew at him, said, you, you know, you couldn't run a whelk stall, that's your problem. <laughs> And, and, of course, the whole thing disintegrated, absolutely disintegrated. But it was a terrible error of judgment, in which I share, I have to say completely, the idea of confronting Willie and Quintin with the sort of stuff that I was doing. I mean, just not real. Uh, but I, but it was, the whole point of this is that Margaret, my relationship with Margaret as a colleague was as good as anybody's, but, but as a sycophant, non-existent. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you stood against her when, when you'd, after you'd resigned from Cabinet, were there any lines of communication between the two of you at all during no, that period? No, no, no. Well, well I, I, I must be accurate. When I went back, I had a heart attack in 93, and I came back to a party conference where she was, although she wasn't Prime Minister then, and she came across and said, you know, hope you're better. So there was, and I think there was one other occasion but I, I, I feel, I, I, I'm not sure, so I, I better not repeat it. It's not of any consequence, but there, there, I think there may have been one other occasion. Uh, when, when she died uh, a few years ago now, uh, were you sad that she'd, sad that she'd gone? Well, uh, you know, you, you don't rejoice at somebody's death, but... I mean, we, we, there was no personal empathy between us, you know. I mean, I'm sad to say, but my, I've been to two funerals in the last week, and, you know, so it, it's, um, it happens. Um, you, you, you have to live with it. Um, um, was it Doc Martin who said the other night on television, we all die, but not today? <laughs> seemed, seemed a realistic assessment, quite an optimistic assessment, in my view. She defined an era that, and still defines so much conservative thinking. I mean, we, we, it had the party. Yeah, but you see, it's all wrong. You know, this was so, this is so fascinating that the, 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 the conservatism that she is seen to represent doesn't represent what she did. I mean, you, you know, take take um, uh, well uh, my Liverpool experience. Um, the most interventionist, mm. um, my Docklands experience, <coughs> forget Liverpool, take London Docklands, the most interventionist concept you could design. My three weeks trudging the streets of Liverpool and 18 months going back week after week, what was I doing? I was in the Thatcher government. The sale of council houses, that was Ted Heath and Peter Walker and Tory councils. She was Prime Minister when it was implemented, but Ted Heath was Prime Minister when it was announced, and I took it through Parliament. Um, the Single European Act, the greatest sharing of sovereignty in British history, just think about that, the greatest sharing of sovereignty in British history, Margaret's position, she pioneered it. She saw, and right, I mean, nothing but admiration for her in this context. She saw that Britain's essential self-interest was interwoven in the marketplace of Europe. She knew the Europeans were going to create one market. She knew that if they did it without us, French and Germans would fix the rules to suit them, just like they had with the common agricultural policy when we didn't join the European movement after the Messina conference. And so she did the right thing. She sent Arthur Cofield, a tax inspector, an accountant, and a former cabinet minister to Brussels to fix it British ways. That's what she did. 
and she signed up to it. So what's, what's all this stuff about, you know, no, no, no? I can tell you exactly what it's about because having done this incredible sharing of sovereignty, quite rightly, it had to be implemented. And the economy was in difficulties in the late 80s. And so the small business community suddenly found day after day after day the specifications for the industrial world they lived in were changing and forms came and civil servants got involved and late at night they suddenly found that they had to comply with something from Brussels. Margaret latched onto it, said it's all them. It wasn't them, it was her. Do you think had she been alive at the time of the referendum and, and fit and healthy, which side would she have campaigned on? Oh, she'd have fought for Brexit. No, not a shadow of doubt by then. Yeah. Because there has, you know, a few people say, well, actually, she was she's always pro-European and point to the sort of things you talk about, but I don't think there's any doubt she'd have been on the side of Farage and Boris. Yeah, she certainly, I certainly believe that it, then, yeah. In yeah. terms of Brexit, it's something you've been very outspoken against uh, and uh, you campaigned for... Britain's role to, to deepen in the European Union, even in the sort of uh, late 90s with the Britain in Europe movement and joining the single currency and things like that. I never, I, 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 we will join the single currency in my view, but not yet and not within my lifetime. Uh, but I think we will. And I think we'll go back into Europe if, if, if Brexit happens. And they will, it will go back, as President Macron has indicated in the last 24 hours. Um, but uh, so that's, uh, I, I didn't think we could join the single currency at that time. In terms of Brexit now, uh, obviously in your view it's a mistake, how can it be stopped? Events, public opinion and events. Well, events first, public opinion. And uh, um, it's... Um, uh, and and, and there have been two potential events um, that which um, the government has handled uh, well, and uh, the first was Nissan, with the possibility of them not considering investing in the northeast, and then the Port Talbot uh, steel problem, where somebody came and sorted it out. But it, it, it's there are. I, I'm not going to do any scaremongering. It will be big events which are consequential on our Brexit policy, which the public will just suddenly wake up and realise. I think that the negotiations probably will have its effect because it's humiliating. You know, mm. I mean, we're leaving the club and we suddenly think we can tell the club what the rules will be. And they're, and they're not going to do it. You know, David Davis can turn up as often as he likes. They've laid down the rules. And that's what they're going to do. They're going to say, these are the, the conditions. You don't like it? It's up to you. And the thing that's happening now, which is, is chilling. They're bored by us. Mm. You know, if you, if, you see, we, we all read this, the, the stuff in the, in, the, in, in, in the British newspapers. And beyond the most appalling rows within the government, which day by day, I mean, I'm not being disloyal, you all read the newspapers, they're all over the television screens, the leaks, the briefing, the, 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 the fights and all that, it's all there, and it's true, the press don't invent it, they, they may slightly fan it, slightly exaggerate it, but it's all based on what's real world happening, and um, uh, so, um, it's huge news here. But I'm, I'm reliably informed, and I, I believe it, 
that in, in, in Europe they, they've passed on. They said, well, they're going. Okay, let them go. And, and it's not a big deal. Obviously, the, 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 the point of principle of leaving the European Union is not one that, that you agree with. In terms, though, of, of the government's tactics in handling it, if, you, if they were to ask for your advice and say, what's the best way to Britain to, to leave and get a good deal, what do you think the government should do differently? Pack it in. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, isn't, there isn't a good deal. But how... You can't get a good deal. You know, this, this is our single biggest marketplace. This is our history. This is our sphere of influence in the world. This is the place where our voice could matter. This is what every Tory Prime Minister that I've worked for, from Winston Churchill onwards, told me, and I believed. And I'm suddenly told that we can turn our back on it. I mean, what's the upside? I mean, it's very I mean, these are all quite detailed questions, but I, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm not too bad at making popular speeches. I can get up and bring tears to the eyes of an audience with talk of yesteryear and onwards and upwards and rosy futures and, you know, you name the platitude, I'll, I'll build on it. <laughs> <laughs> but what is the upside? I mean, you know, so there'll be no more regulation from Brussels. We're going to get rid of, we're going to take all the Brussels regulations into the European, into English law so that we can pick them all off and change them all. Which ones are we going to change? What is the real agenda behind those who want to leave Europe? Is it to improve the social conditions, the welfare conditions, the health conditions, the environmental conditions, to improve them or to diminish them? They don't tell you. Why, if we can deal with the immigrant problem in Europe, haven't we dealt with the immigrant problem of non-Europe already, years ago? If you're talking about exports, well, take the most successful industry we have, which is the financial services industry. If there are to be new markets in the world, the new markets will be based in Shanghai, Singapore, Hong Kong, Sao Paulo, New York, or wherever, but wherever they will be. But the companies that will determine whether we benefit will be a huge range of international companies that already have branches in all those places. So other people will decide whether there are to be new investments across the world, and if there are, they will take on a lot of Chinese or Hong Kong people or, or Mexicans or whatever it is, because you don't actually sell financial services in Shanghai by exporting a lot of Brits to talk to the Chinese. You employ Chinese to do it. So the idea that this incredible phenomenon called the City of London is going to gain from expansion across the rest of the world, is just not real. And then, and you start talking about exports of things. Well, you start then saying, well, which, who are our great exporting companies? And you think of the great Japanese car companies, which are terribly important in our market and selling to Europe. Why are they here? They came here to export to Europe. If Toyota suddenly sees an opportunity to expand its market in South America, they already have factories in South America. They've got American factories. And they've almost certainly got them in China, I don't know, but they almost certainly. But if you go into the detail of these things, our aerospace industry, 
Well, our aerospace industry is, first of all, a partnership on defence equipment with, France, with Germany, Spain and Italy. Airbus, we do the wings. Airbus is sold by France. So, you know, show me, show me the reality of where this new world is. And uh, it isn't. It isn't. It's a, it, it's, it's a tragedy. But that's before you start talking about all the other things like crime and security and research and development and global warming and tax avoidance and all these other things where it's our home market, it's the enlarged sphere of influence. And where are we going to be? What are you going to be seeing in the years ahead when, these, when they all sit down in Brussels or wherever part of Europe it is and they have a conversation about these things? We won't be there. Britain, everything that we are in the world, not there. Of course, we'll be talking to Trump. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say to him? I, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 it's, I mean, what can you say? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just unbelievable, isn't it? But he wouldn't hold his hand. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean. I, just inexplicable. But Britain has to have a, a pragmatic relationship with the, with the President of the United States. That's why we have to talk to him. But what sort of dialogue do you have? What do you talk about? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you'd talk trade, though, wouldn't you? That'd be top of your, that'd be top of your agenda. Trade? He's the most protectionist prime and permanent president we've seen in years. I mean, he's the whole essence. The whole essence of Trumpism is rebuilding America, rebuilding the old uh, industries of yesteryear to create the jobs of the people that he got elected by. It's Farage stuff, you know? If you really want to see, the, if you really want to understand about what we're doing in the world, Farage is the closest we've got to someone who gets on with Trump. Where was Farage with the AFT in Germany? Mm. He was in the, on their platforms. The stuff that he was saying here, all about that undertone of prejudice and, and immigration and all that stuff. It's the world phenomenon of these people. It's terrifying. In terms of something that he could be, uh, and this, this not necessarily my view, but he could be um, of strategic importance in the Middle East. Is that somewhere you could think you think you could have a positive impact? Who? Trump? Yeah. In the Middle East? Uh, well, I mean, uh, go and explain how. <laughs> Tell me the well, ingredients of policy. It, it, depending um, on which papers you read, there, there are some people that say, uh, close to the government, that he understands his brief, and that actually he understands the politics of the Middle East better than perhaps Barack Obama did. Well, I suppose there probably are people who say that, yes. Uh, it, it, what seems slightly missing in the, in the argument is then a shred of evidence to justify the view. <laughs> with, um, with this sort of uh, malaise we talk about, with, with Britain retracting from, from Europe and, and, uh, and the, the global stage as a result, why, and where does it come from in the Conservative Party psyche, that, that anti-Europeanism? Because a lot of people say this is sort of, this is the remnants of the empire, this is sort of little Englanders and, and all the rest of it. Is it that with, with your Conservative colleagues who are anti-European, or, or is it something else? 
Well, I, I, I did explain to you, and I think it's true, that the, 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 the thing really began to deteriorate with the uh, Margaret's refusal to accept responsibility for what she'd done with the single market. Uh, I think if I had to, uh, I, I think the Murdoch Press, Conrad Black, the Conrad Black Telegraph, Murdoch with the Sun, um, and and then the change of editor of the Daily Mail from David English to Paul Dacre, those are absolutely fundamental in understanding. But the thing that swung public opinion, in my view, was the 2008 crash and the frustration of another eight years of frozen living standards. And so when you start getting people getting up and saying, you know, we've got no money and there's 350 million a week we can have in the health service and all those foreigners are ripping us off, that's, you know, that's what they want to hear. Um, and and throw, throw the immigrant issue into that as well. But where, where in the Conservative Party does it come from? Because there's, there's a sort of emotional patriotism about it, isn't there, about Britain's role in the world and it's partly to do with, you know, Thatcher sort of handbagging the Europeans to an extent. But there does seem to be in the Tory party, a, a patriotism that perhaps has gone too far. And I just wonder what the, the psychological well, yeah, roots are. I wouldn't use the word patriotism, I'd use the word nationalism. Uh, little Englander. And of course it's always there, it's much wider than the Tory party. You can see the Labour Party have got exactly the same difficulties as the Tories on this issue. Um, so, but, I mean, the responsibility of politicians is to try and raise people to see the, um, the, the enormity of the, of the change that we're taking upon ourselves by withdrawing from the spheres of influence where our future is going to be much influenced. I mean, I, you know, it's quite, it's quite difficult to, to get into a detailed discussion about these things. I, I, when I'm having a dialogue, I say, well, look, name the ten kingdoms of England. And they say, what? I say, no, the ten kingdoms. And why? Well, people died for those kingdoms. I mean, remember the Wars of the Roses? Yorkshire, Lancashire, to the death. Um, it, we've all moved up. The globalization is a real thing. And, and, and the globalization... It's extraordinary, really, in, in the immigrant world. Everyone's got one of these. But they've got it in Central Africa, where they're, they're starving. And they've only got to do what I do and you do and look, and they can see I'm us. We're not starving. Actually, we're living in a life of quality undreamt of in sub-Saharan Africa. And so the problems are now world problems. The information is instant everywhere. And so trying to recreate the nationalism of the frontiers of the nation state, when this is the real world, is, is just out of date. And if you want to play a world a role, and this is what the young people understand, if you want to be in there tomorrow, you have to understand what this is all about. Um, how long have you had an iPhone for? <laughs> well, I'm in the publishing business. And, and that in itself is, is another very... Because there's an industry, we're going through a technological revolution which at a speed which is frightening. Um, now, do I pretend to understand it? Well, as a businessman, I have some understanding of it. But I'm very aware that this thing is way out ahead of me. 
you know. But so this, the, the printed word, um, the, the advertising on the printed word has gone on to the, uh, this, the recruitment advertising has gone on to the web. And um, uh, the circulation of the magazines and the newspapers, uh, a very significant number of the, the, the newspaper, uh, the magazine groups that I uh, were competed against, they're up for sale, you know, because there is such a change. And you, you know, all these words, Google, Uber, um, you know, you know them better Tinder. than I do. Whatever, whatever, <laughs> whatever. You know. yeah. Yeah. Do you use, do you have many? Do you just use it for emails, calls, and texts, or do you have apps and things on there? I've got the birds of Costa Rica. <laughs> 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 that, that, that's what you call a showstopper. Showstopper. <laughs> uh, and uh, no, I've got some apps, but uh, but it's it's uh, I, I'm I'm not a habituary of this thing. Um, and certainly messages, telephones, yes, all the time. But uh, um, it annoys me, frankly, because the, if, I, if I want to know something, either it doesn't work because I press the wrong buttons, uh, or, or um, the, 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 when I get onto a website, it, it's so presented that I can't find the information I want, you know. And then, the, then you get the, this awful person who says, "What can I do to help?" You know. Um, <laughs> Siri, do you ever use it? I, I, I hate him. Perhaps it's a girl. I don't know if it's a man or woman. I hate him. I have to hate him. Bloody impertinent. <laughs> and what does Siri say to that? I'm sorry, I didn't understand your question. <laughs> I think that's what it does say. Yeah. I don't care if you understood my question. You know. I asked Siri in the... Oh, do you know, I was just telling Anne that we're coming here tonight. This thing now, I get a message. Yep, I get a message, and it says, um, uh, happy to see you at 6 o'clock, um, Grosvenor Gardens. And then it has three replies for me to send. Good, hope not to be late, looking forward to seeing you. <laughs> it's telling me <laughs> what, what I should say back. It does, it does leave me an option so far about if I want to send my own personalised message. But the question, you see, there's a serious question. If we're going into this robot age, what's the point of us? You know? What happens when the robots start inventing robots? Well, I can tell you. <laughs> Have you been to the Labour conference? I can, <laughs> I can tell you. Relax, because it's not going to worry me. You know? <laughs> But do you, a lot of people do have concerns about AI in the future. I mean, these are people talk about automation as well as big data and the other the, the issues that the political class they perceive isn't uh, effectively thinking about. But we're joking about it, but it, it will be, perhaps in your lifetime, almost certainly in mine, a reality that... You don't need to make that distinction. I know, I thought... <laughs> <laughs> like a young William Hague, uh, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> But it is a, it's, a, it's a real issue that actually politics isn't talking about, it, isn't it? The, the, the rise of AI and a robot future. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's hard enough to talk about the price of bread without trying to talk about sort of AI and things like that. You know. <laughs> well, let's open the, uh, the floor up to questions. If you've got a question you'd like to ask uh, Lord Heseltine, and then please do. We've got time for about three questions, so if we could just have the house lights up, indicate clearly, and uh, Tim will come round uh, with uh, the microphone. Yes. And let us know your name as well, please. Hello, my name's Zoe. Um, I think a lot of people will 
will agree with your, your views on Brexit, but some people kind of might have gone through various stages of grief and are now kind of acceptance that this is the direction we're going in. Do you think that we've gone too far and actually we can't really turn back and we've got to make the best of it? Or do you genuinely think that your view might actually, you know, your, your ambition might, might actually become reality? I don't ever for an instant accept that uh, we have gone too far. My very clear view is that Parliament is sovereign and having spent half my political life trying to overturn the results of general elections in which the British people voted for a Labour government, <laughs> I have not the slightest hesitation in speaking on behalf of the 48% who thought Brexit was wrong and I will do everything in my puny, tiny power to reverse the decision or frustrate it. Full stop. End of story. Is there one from this side of the room? Yes, the gentleman is there. Hi, my name's Toby. Um, talking about that eight years of like flat wage growth and um, prices going up, and that being the reason for the polarisation left and right, do you hold David Cameron and George Osborne, do you think there is blame to lay at their feet for the policies after the 2010 election? Or do you think it was inevitable um, that we'd have that stagnation? Oh, it was inevitable. Um, of course. And uh, uh, governments overborrowed, companies overborrowed, and all of you and me overborrowed. And it was a fool's paradise. And it bust. And we all know the consequences. And the frightening thing is that we've been trying to recover the strength of our corporates and banking world and our personal finances for eight years. And now the rate of personal borrowing is going up at a frightening rate. And it's all in the papers. I, mean, I don't know how many of you have read this, but it's all there. People are borrowing again. And uh, um, there'll be a consequence for that. Wait till interest rates go up. And then people will find it. Well, again, it's all in the press. If you read the papers, interest rates are going to go up. And people who thought it was cheap to borrow will find that they have to pay interest rates much different to what they've been paying recently. So it's an unstable situation. And uh, um, the, the, I, I personally have the highest regard for David Cameron and uh, George Osborne. Uh, it's a pity about the referendum uh, that they in the end have to, they have to bear responsibility for that. But I understand the politics of that within the Conservative Party. And yes, the, the lady just over there, the, the last question of the night, the, the best question we've ever had. <laughs> and here it comes. Hello, my name's Rachel. It's a privilege to hear your perspective from such a position of power. Um, my question for you is, you've touched on uh, the internet, you've touched on journalism, you've touched on Europe. Who do you think has the most power in shaping current political opinion? In which country? It, here in, well, uh, I was going to say in the UK, but if you're pre prepared to answer in a, in a global perspective, that's... Well, let's not go through every country. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe UK and the world. Yeah, I think, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question, and on a worldwide basis, it is, uh, I, I think that um, it's pretty worrying, because I don't see a leader, um, well, wait a minute, what about um, China? 
China knows what it's doing. It has the resources to do it, it has the leadership and the machine, and it's got the strategy. So I think probably that my answer will have to be that, that uh, uh, the person driving is President Xi of China at the moment. Um, very interesting, they've just done a six, I mean, Anne and I went to China in 1973. They were a peasant economy. I've been back many times since. They're now a space age economy. And I, I was privileged to meet Chinese people in 73. In 73, when they were a peasant economy, who told me what they were going to do. And I knew a lot of the Hong Kong people at that time. And they all became part of what China was going to do. And I witnessed it happen. And I was reading just two days ago the new national plan of the Chinese. And they're now going to trade up their manufacturing capability. Well, would, they would, wouldn't they? But what that means is they're going to come competing with us in the leadership areas where we've so far maintained leadership. Every time you see a Chinese government-backed machine buy a British technology company, they're not doing it for us. They're doing it to transfer the technology back to China. They have infinite resources because of the way they've managed their economy uh, to enable them to do it. They're opening up the old Silk Road uh, in order to expand their ability to export across that huge swathe of their frontiers and uh, they're, they're making a massive inroad into Africa. So uh, China would have to be uh, my answer to your question. Uh, finally, uh, uh, Michael, it's, uh, it's arguably the biggest political question of the year. It's one that wasn't debated at the Labour Party Commons uh, properly. What's the naughtiest thing you've ever done? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's extraordinary that you think there is such a thing. <laughs> But on a relative scale, there are things that are naughty and less naughty. I, I, my memory is not what it was. Because <laughs> <laughs> of all those drugs you smoked, and perhaps that was the... No, no, I've never, I've never taken drugs. That is for sure. I've never taken drugs. Um, indeed, I've never been offered drugs. Until now. <laughs> I'm not coming back here again. <laughs> You're not the first guest to say that, um, but it's been a pleasure. Um, well, it's been a very special night, and we're, we're uh, exceptionally, and I will be eternally grateful for you, for you coming down tonight. Every single night we've done here has been very different. Thank you all uh, for coming, but without a doubt, one of the most special and, uh, I have to say, hypnotic nights uh, I've ever had. Please, a huge thank you for Lord Heseltine. <laughs>
I mean, that would just be every show, but I've tried to pick a, a good mix, and I'll be back next week with another one. Please leave a five-star written review, and uh, I'll see you soon. Ta-ra. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.